Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, December the 2nd, 2020. This is episode 2784 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, today's episode is called Building Science Technology for the Homestead. Don't be like, oh, wow, it's going to be kind of a uh, high-level Poindexter-type show today that that's not going to fit in. We're going to talk about practical, down-to-earth technologies that you can use, whether you're building a new home, retrofitting an old one. We're even going to broaden it out to land management. We're going to broaden it out to uh, outbuildings and a longer, broader look at um, the whole the whole picture of what homesteading is all about and what it's turning into going into the future using the latest technologies and, and, and keeping with the, uh, the, the respect for the past and some things that they did better in the past than we're doing today, like choosing the right building materials. It's a great discussion. It's with a, a gentleman named Ryan Garner, who's been a longtime listener to the show, grew up in Washington near the Idaho border, actually only a few miles away from where Gary Collins is at. And uh, he's uh, done a lot of research into building science technology. We wanted to come on the show and just have a chat about it. We'll do that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I guess it was about this time three years ago, right around Thanksgiving, just after Thanksgiving, uh, I heard from a rep at Ridge Wallet, hey, we want to sponsor your show. And I said, I, I don't know, man. I don't know if it really fits. They said, let us send you a wallet. So they did. And I looked at this little metal wallet, and I looked at my billfold. And I was like, but some of the stuff that I carry in my billfold is not going to go in there. And I thought, you know what, be a grown-up, put the stuff that fits in there in there, take the stuff that doesn't fit in there out, put it on the shelf, do it for a month, and see how you feel at the end of a month. And I did. Three years later, I'm still carrying my Ridge wallet. It still looks great. It still works great. It still functions perfectly. And above all, it still helps protect me from identity theft. Check them out today. They're at RidgeWallet.com. And remember, MSB members, you guys get a discount, 10% off everything, not just the wallets, at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I'm going to explain to you why this is an easy one for me to endorse. Backwoods Home Magazine is not the sponsor I have the longest-term relationship with as a sponsor. That honor goes to Safe Castle. However... Backwoods Home Magazine is the sponsor with whom I have the longest relationship with, period. Going back to 1993, when I got out of the Army, uh, it was the first time I ever bought a copy of Backwoods Home Magazine. I found them in Barnes & Noble bookstore when people used to go to bookstores and bought a couple copies of the magazine over a few months and then eventually subscribed to them early in 1994. They were the first magazine I subscribed to ever in real life. It is 2020 and I'm still a subscriber. 1993 to 2020, I've been a customer. So, yeah, I kind of re recommend them as a great publication to learn more about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. With that, let's get into our topic today. Again, we're talking about building science technologies for the homestead with Ryan Garner. Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you so much, Jack. It's a pleasure and an honor. It's uh, yeah, I've been really excited to do this for a long time. 
I think it's going to be a cool subject. We're talking about building science for the homestead today and how we can use building science and new building techniques and products to make our homes more efficient, our homesteads more efficient as well. Before we get into that, though, tell us a little bit about Ryan, man. Who 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 is a Ryan Garner, and what is a Ryan Garner? Where, what, what's your kind of background, and uh, you know, take us back to like you're trying to figure out what to do with your life and how you end up where you are now. Right, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was born and raised in uh, Washington State, um, maybe unfortunately. Uh, I'd love to get out of here. Um, but, yeah, so born and raised uh, mostly in eastern Washington, and uh, after graduating high school, um, went tried to start college um, and kind of quickly realized that I didn't really want to pay or go into debt to uh, learn a bunch of stuff that I may have no interest in. So um, got out of that pretty quickly and um, started looking for odd jobs. Ended up um, getting a job with a conference center where I was hired on as the um, assistant facility manager. So um Got into doing, you know, a lot of uh, hands-on work, um, restoring things, taking, you know, taking care of a fairly large facility. Um, and then after, let's see, about four years, ended up um, moving in to the main position. I was a facility manager, and I stuck with that up until just uh, this August. And uh, like everyone else, we went through some shutdowns and some craziness. And um, but I had been feeling like. Um, I was wanting to get into something different. I had gotten my contractor's license and had really kind of started moving in that direction. And um, this August kind of just presented itself as a good time to transition out. So I did that. And, uh, yeah, moving into the construction world, I've been doing um, I've always been, you know, enjoying research and studying subjects. And so when I kind of stumbled upon building science a couple of years ago, it just kind of really caught my eye and I just uh, ran with it. So. So let's kind of just start out with the very most basic question we can have then. What exactly is building science? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on where you go and, um, and what you're looking into, kind of building science kind of came about really heavily in Canada and then over in uh, some of the European countries. Um, and so depending on the – there's not a really solid definition yet. If you were to go to like the uh, you can pull it up on Wikipedia or different things like that. And it would basically talk about um, a collection of scientific knowledge, um, building physics, architectural sciences, um, you know, different studies like that and how it pertains to um, our dwellings, our our homes, our structures. And the big concern was wanting to build first off buildings that were going to be really energy efficient, but then also stand the test of time. So um, if you were to look back like in the 70s and stuff like that, they were building these really well-insulated, very airtight homes, and within a short time they kind of realized um, they started having some catastrophic failures um, because they weren't dealing with um, some of the other conditions that were then going on inside the home. And so building science kind of grabs all that under one umbrella. Um, here in the U.S., Um, they're still trying to kind of collect under one umbrella and one idea. Um, but if you were to look at some of the guys that have really kind of set the standards, um, um, let's see here on like the building science corporation, some of those guys, uh, Joseph, uh, Listerberg, 
I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, they would have a really solid definition that would probably align well with what the Canadians and the Europeans have been doing for a while. So, but that's really interesting. Now it also sounds pretty technical and pretty complicated. So why should the average homesteader concern themselves with something like building science at that kind of high level? Sure. Yeah. And, and the way I kind of look at it and approach it is, um, actually would be kind of similar to like the way I would look at and approach something like permaculture, where it's a really large study. It can be very technical, very involved, but well, at least some of the techniques that, that go into that. But as a whole, you know, permaculture would look at it as, okay, these are the things we're trying to accomplish. So what techniques do we employ? And I think building science, it's helpful to kind of look at it that way. You want first off a building that's going to be um, safe for the for the homeowner, right? And so, um, but then obviously you want um, energy efficiency because as energy costs move up, um, and then just being comfortable in your own home um, is a nice thing. And uh, so, how do you do those things while also creating a durable structure so that we're not um, just constantly having to make repairs, or we're just not in this mindset of like a home lasts, you know? one generation and then it's being torn down and built with something new. Um, and so some of those things, um, they feel a little bit big for and really technical for the homesteader or for just the, you know, average person that owns their home. But it'd be really, I, I, yeah, I would look at it more as like, these are the things that you want to attain. Maybe not all the techniques fit, but what do I, what do I employ on my, property? What do I do in my home? What makes the most sense for me? So it's in a lot of ways that I feel like it is pretty similar to permaculture. There's a lot of, it depends answers. Mm -hmm. So, well, and I, I guess it would also be kind of like the way I look at like web development and design as an entrepreneur. I don't know how to do all that crap, but being aware of what's possible lets me hire the right person to do the thing that I need done. And not maybe be talked into doing something that's not the best for me by someone that knows only how to do one thing, and that's why they want to pitch that thing, right? Like, um, it'd be, you know, with computing, it's a little bit more familiar to me, so it'd be something like, you know, we need to build this on Ruby on Rails. Well, why? Right? Well, what about PHP? What about, you know, uh, just linking PHP to a MySQL database so I can have more people that can work on it? Like, that would be a question I could ask because I have familiarity with it, but don't ask me to code PHP. Right, right. No, yeah, hundred percent. It, it, you know, if you if you start to study and you start to learn about um, first off different materials, different construction techniques, and yeah, the things that are available to you, then yeah, it's really hard for someone to come in and sell you on this idea. And you're like, no, that's that's not what I want for my home. Or hey, can we consider a different option? So, and and again, yeah, um, it's it's really about making that structure efficient. Um, healthy for the occupant and durable. So, um, just having some of the basic knowledge on that can be, can be huge. So yeah, hundred percent. So how are some ways we can incorporate these, these concepts into brand new construction? Cause that's, if you have the money and the time and the space and, and the budget, et cetera, that's kind of the best place to be because you get what you want from the ground up. Yeah, hundred percent. The building science in new construction is going to be where you really get um, the best effect. 
Um, there are, there, you know, are techniques and, and solutions for pre-existing homes and remodels. But when it comes to new construction, um, kind of like you said, if you have the budget, you have the time, um, definitely start looking for, uh, a, you know, like a qualified engineer or an architect who is aware of, um, these, these techniques, these building materials, all that type of stuff and, and start there. Um, and really what they're going to be looking to do is, um, control water, control air, um, and it's really about developing a system of control in your building. So the biggest concern and the thing that's going to shorten a home's life quickest is just bulk water. So something like rain or, you know, you have a sprinkler and it's messed up and it's constantly hitting the house every night as it's trying to water the shrubs. So bulk water in that form is going to provide the most damage and really shorten the life of the building. But then after that, the next um, most detrimental thing would be water that's traveling with air. And so that's why if you start getting into building science and stuff, there's a massive uh, focus on um, air tightness of the home. So they'll do things like blower door tests where they actually come in, they'll seal up the home as it's being constructed. Um, and then they run, they pressurize it. And they have a way of monitoring how many air exchanges happen within a set amount of time. And they can give you a score based on that. And they want that number as low as possible because that means you have very few penetrations, very few um, openings within the structure for air to move through. So the amount of water that can move through with bulk air like that um, would be the next biggest killer of a home. Um, and then obviously that it makes it, far less energy efficient and less comfortable if you have a really drafty home. So, um, so they're going to do things like blower door tests. Um, even some of the framing techniques, uh, the different materials that they're using now, things like, uh, your, your sheathing, um, which, you know, it's really typical to see like an OSB sheathing, um, and then trying to tie up like a Tyvek vapor barrier. Now they have products where the vapor barrier is built into the actual OSB, and so when you put it up, it is solid, it's good to go, and any penetrations or anywhere where you have seams, you can use like a tape or a uh, like a fluid applied flashing and really just seal up that space. Um, and so those are kind of just some of the basics that they would be doing in, in new construction. And again, it, it can go from um, a very minimal, you're trying to hit, you know, minimum air standards or uh, air tightness standards. And then you could blow up your budget and go to the very extreme, which is more like your passive house and um, and, and those standards where the building is so well controlled um, that that heating it, um, moving air in it, it, you know, becomes really easy to do. So very, very cool. And, it, you know, I think maybe one of the places we can make this make sense for people is you mentioned about the highly sealed up homes in the 70s. And people would think, well, what's the problem? Well, you've basically built a place for people to live inside a, an igloo cooler. And so you, d you did that. And now if you don't have proper air exchange, you create a very humid environment. I remember uh, you mentioned permaculture. Bill Mollison was talking about these exact type of homes. And a person he knew somewhere in, I don't remember where, but they built this like kind of timber frame looking home, but it was this ultra sealed type thing. And they had some big, you know, raw, uh, hewn beams in on the inside of the property that weren't sealed with anything. And this revealed the problem when they started to grow mushrooms 
inside their house, right? <laughs> if you have if you have mushrooms growing on the the roof beams of your house, you probably have mold in your walls. So then right. you needed to then take that to another level. Like it's not that the insulation is a bad idea, but if you don't do something to get the moisture out, then you got a problem, right? Because now you're breathing moist air, you're you're creating condensation, you're creating all the problems that go along with that. So you, you, what happened with those is somebody came up with a bright idea. We'll just seal the hell out of this thing, but didn't think about well, what does that mean? On the other end of it, like what does that what does that cause to happen? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think if you've got you know mushrooms growing in places where you didn't try and plant them, that's that's a really bad sign. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, hundred percent. And it it the seventies kind of revealed that really quickly. It didn't take very long. Um, they had massive insurance you know claims across the nation. And uh, what it what it really revealed is, one, we can seal it really tight. We can make this awesome insulated structure. But now what do we do? What do we how do we exchange air? How do we make sure that everyone inside is healthy and things stays durable? And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I just can't get that picture out of my head. This idea of a mushroom growing off of my ceiling. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. you got mushroom on wood. You got a problem because you got mycelium have already freaking, you know, colonized the wood. Uh, you don't really right. come, that's like trying to come back from like stage eight cancer at that point. You've got a, you've got a real yeah. problem, yeah, right? It's a bad day. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about the person that's like, okay, well, this is all great and well if I'm building a brand new, you know, dome home construction or something like that. I can put all this tech into my, uh, into my, uh, my building. But I, I bought a place and there's already a house there and, uh, and what have you. Are there ways that some of these things can be kind of retrofitted or incorporated into existing builds? Yeah, definitely. So, um, and again, it, it, it's kind of the classic permaculture answer. It depends. So some of it's going to depend on your budget. Some of it will depend on if you're already in the structure and you're wanting to do this versus, hey, maybe you just bought it and you got a little bit of time to do some work before you move in. Um, so all those things, you know, add different options and, and techniques. But there's like, for example, um, in a remodel or a pre-existing home um, condition, one of the one like great thing to maybe start with is just do an actual blower door test. And have that done and then figure out, okay, do we have massive air leaks somewhere? And then you can begin to track those down and then deal with those accordingly. There's a company, um, it's actually called Aero Barrier and they actually developed, it's basically an air, like a, an airborne caulk system. So they would go in, um, they would pressurize the home just like they were going to do a blower door test. And then they actually spray in this, uh, caulk essentially. And it will float around and on all the penetrations where air is trying to escape the building, it collects there and over, you know, I think it, it takes them probably close to a day, I would assume, to do a typical home. But it will start to help seal up all of those penetrations. And so um, then they, they've been seeing, you know, wild success in lowering those blower door tests. And then um, they've got a design so that once it hits um it really needs kind of that air penetration to actually seal up on all the other surfaces. They just go through and they can clean it out. And so things like that, I mean, that's obviously probably higher end on the budget list, but, um, but that would just be like one example. And then of course the simple things like when you're changing out windows and doors and then just making sure that, um, your framing, your siding, your sheathing, all that is working properly. And then HVAC um, concerns, uh, if you, you know, you guys are down in the south and so you guys have a lot of 
um, homes that have HVAC systems are up in the attic. Well, the attic can cook itself to, you know, 140 degrees pretty easily during the summer. And that makes an extremely hard, like, working environment for an HVAC system. So there's lots of work that can happen up in, in the attic space with HVAC, with um, sealing that space off better. Um, but obviously, anytime you get into that and you're doing something more more extensive, it's not just your simple window repairs, sealing around window frames, that, that type of thing, you would definitely want to maybe consult someone and just get some opinions. Because, again, you don't want to get into a situation where, Ah, I did this awesome job. I've sealed up my home and now I'm growing crazy stuff in it. So are there other ways we can use building science on the homestead other than just for the house itself? Sure. Yeah. So what I, what I think would be really fun and interesting is as this kind of thing starts to develop and there's more uh, materials, um, techniques and kind of just the whole movement, I think it would be really cool if, if like homesteaders, and people who are interested in self-sufficiency, like start taking some of these ideas and like, I could see this really working well in things like greenhouses, um, you know, systems where you want to be able to control temperature, humidity, um, airflow, um, and being able to do that at a more extreme level, but also possibly, um, reducing the amount of energy it takes to, to run those spaces. So, you know, what jumps to my mind immediately again is like uh, greenhouses, uh, maybe if you um, really love your chickens or something, you maybe you make a really awesome coop or something like that. But but any of those spaces where um, you would want to really just tie in as much efficiency and control over that indoor environment as you can. So, um, yeah, greenhouses would be kind of the easy first one that would jump in my mind. Very cool. So um, are there any particular Things that you see yourself using, I, I know you have some goals for your homestead that you know you you might want to really be zoning in on on things that you you're excited about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in my my situation and and the things that I'm really excited about, I'm up in the north here, so um, you know, trying to create an environment where we can heat a structure well. Um, is kind of the bigger deal versus being down in South trying to cool it. Um, but, um, I'm currently, I'm not, not in my own place yet. I'm, I'm working on that right now. We're kind of transit going through some transitions, but, um, I would love to be able to get into, into an actual home and, and then start putting in some of these techniques in the remodel remodeling kind of sense. So, so looking at um, windows, looking at your doors, all your penetrations for like outside plumbing and electrical and going through and then dealing with those, um, with the proper, um, proper material. So, um, something simple to like even think about would be, um, kind of a fun, uh, brain experiment or would be to kind of like look at your windows and say, okay, if I'm going to replace these windows, and I've got, you know, southern facing windows. Does it make more sense? Like, do I want to try and use that solar energy for my benefit? So should I put in a double glazed window where I'm going to get more energy transfer through? And then do I use triple glazed windows in another part of the house where I'm trying to hold back energy or you know, essentially? So, um, so that's kind of where I'm going. Um, and then as I've, kind of delved into construction. I'm doing mostly remodel work at this point. I'm, I haven't done too much new construction. So um, when it comes to remodels um, in, in clients' homes, customers' homes, um, yeah, I definitely I enjoy looking at, okay, what 
what do we do in this space within this budget and how do I give them a really comfortable, long lasting space? So that's really cool. What are, what are some thoughts on maybe the broader environment um, with land, et cetera? Is there any place that it fits in there? Yeah. So I think like the more, the more efficient we can make our homes, Um, and it's not just efficiency, um, durability becomes huge to me in, in how it impacts the environment. So you can make an ultra efficient home, but if it only lasts, you know, 30, 40 years, which sounds like a long time, but really for a structure like that, it, it, that really isn't that long. And so if, if you can build a super efficient home and it lasts 30 years, that's great. You know, maybe you've helped the environment somewhat with your energy consumption, but, um, in a broader, or maybe a more um, beneficial sense, it would be better if that home was, you know, maybe even slightly less efficient, but it was just hyper durable and it was going to really stand the test of time. And the only reason it gets torn down is because I don't know, someone decided they needed to, but um, that and that impact on the environment, not having to go through and, and harvest a bunch of trees to then, you know, create a bunch of lumber and stuff like that, that all becomes, you know, And very important, and, and you have a lot less impact on all those systems if the structure's sitting there for a hundred years, which is really kind of, I mean, if you think about it, that it's a it's a long time, it's multi generational, but it's it's very attainable. There's homes that have already stood that test of time, and and really that's the goal for most um, builders who are kind of moving into that space is they want to see a home that's going to last you know around a hundred years or longer. So. Um, And I think that's all great. I, you know, I, I love an example that um, I heard from a different builder, like putting in hardwood floors in your home may feel like you're hurting the environment. But if that hmm. actually works well and it lasts, you know, 50 to 100 years and all you're doing is coming in and doing a real light sand on it every 10 years and you're resealing it like like you're actually helping the environment and, and things like laminate and all these alternatives, like it's appropriate in some sense and it's a, it's got its space, but we don't actually really have a good understanding on what kind of impact those materials are going to have long-term. But if you can harvest a forest in a sustainable way and whatever product you get out of it lasts an incredibly long time, like that's probably a net win for the environment. So, so focusing less on, maybe all these alternative um, materials, again, they do have their places in their space, but being able to say, hey, if we are going to harvest um, this forest, we're going to do it in a sustainable way, but we're going to build this house. If it lasts 100 years, that's huge. That forest has probably come back in a, in a, in a great way. So um, so that's kind of how I like to look at it, and, and it kind of really opens up uh, the possibilities. So. Yeah, I mean, wood is an example of something that can be not sustainably managed, but regeneratively managed. And to me, it's regenerative if there's more this year than there was last year, even though I took some. So I just shared this, and I, you're going to love this uh, video. I can't remember what it's called, but I'll, I'll get it to you afterwards. I'll put it in the show notes. But I shared it this uh, holiday, and it was an old man out in California who... Uh, bought over 400 acres back in the 60s. And talk about building science. This guy's an architect and engineer, and some of the stuff he did, you just 
God, why don't you have, cause he's going to die soon. Like, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just he's old, right? So like, why don't you have yeah. a loose, why, you're a Yoda. Why don't you have a loose Skywalker to take this forward? And, uh, but he was explaining how all this land is all redwoods. Well, it's not all redwoods, but it's a lot of redwoods and how it was heavily timbered in a very detrimental way. But they had taken all the wood that they needed from that land since the sixties and never ended up with less than they had the year before. And they did that by doing a analysis of the uh, property and saying per acre, this property produces X number of board feet of lumber, which sounds very clinical, but it is very scientific. And well, you don't take that much. Right? And the less, you know, the, the bigger that delta, the more regenerative the land is. But he said the funny thing about that number is if you do it right, the number goes up every year. So not only does the number of total board feet of lumber on the land go up, the number that will be produced in the next year also goes up over time. And he was showing how some of these trees that were, you know, when they were cut down, they were probably 500 years old or more. How they had basically coppiced out of the ground and created clones. And these were huge trees now. And he was like, but you could cut, you know, in this group, it's like a fairy ring, basically, of giant redwoods. You could cut three of these five trees, and those other trees will grow faster and larger because you did that, because you opened the space up. And it was it was pretty amazing to think about that way. And yet, everything they built on that property, they had built for no real cost as far as the lumber because they had taken it themselves and milled it themselves and the the property was a hundred times better today than it was in 1965 when he bought it. And you can apply that at that broader level. So now we're using the wood to do the building, but we're also using the resource to make the resource greater. Definitely, definitely. And the longer you can extend that 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 resource out from having to reuse it again or, or go mm -hmm. back and reharvest again, like the better it is. So no, that sounds, I mean, that's, that's awesome. And so, yeah, I mean, the longer we can pull our buildings out and, and make them durable and efficient and comfortable for people to live in healthy, all those things like, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, just a giant net win for, um, you know, for, for the environment, but then also for, for you as the, the homeowner. So, I mean, um, one of the things that I, I've heard you talk about is is just the home, the idea of a homestead kind of becoming more of an asset versus mm -hmm. a, a liability in someone's life. And so, um, and I look at building science as like trying to help you move in that direction. Now, obviously, you are probably typically more talking about what your land produces and what you're producing at home. And then I'm looking at it from the perspective, let's do that. And then also, how do we make this cost us less over time? So oh, sure. less repair less, you know, um, energy being put into it to, to keep it comfortable and all those things. And so, um, I think when you kind of take those two and you marry them together, like you would have this really pretty awesome force. Well, and so. think about how durable, like your example of, of hardwood floors, it really is. You see these home improvement shows and stuff where this couple goes in and they buy this house from like 1904. And, uh, you know, the, the, this, uh, this other couple's going to remodel it for them. And the first thing they do is rip all the carpets or linoleum or whatever out. And what's under there? A 120-year-old hardwood floor. And it it's beautiful. Like you wonder why, why did anybody cover this up? And it's still yeah. there. Like, yeah. And they might have to tear down half the damn house 
But in many instances, that floor is still there. Or it makes me think of like the, the house that, that I partially grew up in that my grandparents owned in Pennsylvania. The old house, which we called the shanty, uh, which was the first house on the property. It had been built in the 1880s. And there was a big basement in it. And when you went down in that basement, you looked up and saw these oak beams. And we had some uh, nails pounded into one of these beams to hang deer up. Well, we started to shoot more deer, and we'd have more than one deer to process at a time. So the old man's like, well, go down there and put some nails in that. Oh, okay. Uh, so I ended up, you know, smoking drill bits and pounding those nails that look like, uh, like the nails you put in a concrete that look like a peg. That's what it took to get into yeah, yeah. this wood, which was almost a hundred years, actually probably was about a hundred years old at the time. And so if, Yes, we're taking this natural resource, but if we take the right resource the right way, then the durability actually means we have to take less over time, not more. Exactly. Yep, nailed it right on the head. Just just increasing that durability is, is going to be such a huge win in that way. Yep. And if you think about it, like a lot of those older homes that you're talking about, like a lot of them stood the test of time, and it was because... Uh, wood is just such a cool material, especially in like construction and stuff. Like, given the right environment, it can just move and and deal with its environment as it would out in nature. It can absorb some moisture and then it can release it, and it can it can really stand up a long time if it's you know breathing and if it's doing all those things. The bummer with that is, well, now you've got a really like cold or hot house that you're trying to always make comfortable, right? <laughs> And so it's like trying to find that balance and trying to really um, get the most out of both the energy efficiency, but then realizing like if this wood is going to be that sealed, like you really have to go the extra mile to make sure that it's not getting any moisture and it's not able to uh, and, and start breaking down. So, no, it, it's it's a it's such a fascinating, fascinating product. And I'm really excited to kind of see as this becomes more and more um, popular and kind of more um, mainstream and is studied more in the U.S., kind of the direction that this will all go. So, And just before we move on from timber, I think it's a place where we really need to start doing things differently. Um, most of the, the board lumber in our country today is produced by growing huge stands of pine and then cutting it all down and then selling that land to somebody who will buy it in a dilapidated state, and then they don't really do much with it, so eventually they figure out the only thing they can do is plant more pine, and then they do this again, and they do this again, and they do this again. And if you go to uh, western Louisiana, eastern Texas, you'll see this at a scale that's hard to even get your your mind around. Whereas we can take these, these hardwood stands take much longer, but they produce much higher revenues, and they're much more uh, regenerative when managed right. We can overplant and thin, and then we can start to replace as we take. Instead of clear-cutting an entire property, you're taking a portion on an annualized basis. And that just seems to be, and I'm not even getting into like coppicing and fuel wood and stuff like that. I'm just straight up you know, growing board lumber. But we can do that with oak. We can do that with walnut. Uh, we can do that with, with very expensive high-end timber. Just you're planning that for your heirs to begin harvesting, mostly anyway. We might be able to take some thinning for veneers and things like that. But the, the true eventual harvest is like your grandkids get to do that. But if we start thinking generationally with this, this is actually, you know, it's a it's a half-century problem to solve. 
and that's not that long in the scale of, of humanity, even let alone you know the Earth. Right. Yeah. No. It, and it, it is kind of odd, um, and I don't know if it's it's even really being looked at looked at because you're you're right. Like you know, ninety percent of all your framing lumber and stuff like that, it's coming from maybe two or three different types of species of tree. Yep. And they're just doing this large, broad scale harvest. And and I don't even know if anyone sat down and asked the question like, is this the right wood for what we're asking it to do? Yeah. Yes, it's very cheap. And yeah, that's that's the number, right? It's it, that's the thing. Is it cheap? Because I I just think back to like the mid '90s here in Texas, and there were all these housing developments being built, and you could buy a four to five bedroom house somewhere in the mid two thousand square foot range on your little you know suburban lot for one hundred five thousand bucks, brand mm-hmm. new, right? So you can't you can't frame that house with oak or redwood, right? <laughs> and sell it for yeah. even back then. You can't you can't do that. And they were they were literally cookie cuttering them. And what it made me really think of is this is probably a lot what it was like not just in Texas, but in most of the country in the nineteen late forties, mid fifties, early sixties, when the boomers exploded and everybody moved out to the suburbs, right? Like they had to manufacture these houses. Not build them, manufacture them. And the, right. this entire timber industry was built around the concept of manufacturing homes. And I know when people hear manufactured home, they think trailer. But the modern site-built home isn't that much different than a trailer, except it sits on a, a slab. I mean, it's it, if you look at the interior of the walls and how they're built, they're not built much differently, even really expensive ones. No, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Yeah, the production production builder... Um, not not that I'm trying to put them down, but that but that whole model of just coming in and you're just just punching out these homes in in kind of that rapid fire fashion, um, and and yeah, it's the whole goal is let's get this up for the the cheapest amount we can, and so yeah, no one is sitting back and thinking like, hmm, is pine like the best best uh, solution for inside the wall? Well, maybe may, you know maybe it was, maybe it's maybe it isn't, but no one's not you know. No one's not even asking that question. And it makes me think back to kind of like the durability and, and pulling that timeline out. You go back and you start looking at some of those old homes, even if they weren't framed out with really good hardwoods or anything like that, even if they were framed out with something like a softwood, like pine, they were dealing with old growth pine. And that's a totally different animal compared to these rapid forced you know, projects where they've got to get this tree up as quickly as possible and then it's harvested. Like it, they it might as well be two different types of wood. It, it's kind of crazy that the, just the hardness and the durability between something that's that's been growing there for a really long time and it's taken a long time to get to that maturity versus something where we're trying to do it as rapidly as possible because we need to build you know a hundred thousand homes in this area as quickly as possible. And 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 some of that you know comes down to yeah we probably had the baby boomer generation fuel that, but then this whole mindset of of too, I think, like moving away from homes that lasted and were multi-generational in the sense that like you were going to be handing them down. Maybe it wasn't your kids, but they were going to last a while. You know, someone was going to buy it and appreciate it and maybe do, you know, basic add-ons or remodels and stuff like that versus now it's like you put them up and, and you tear them down almost as fast as you can. So, um, and it's, 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 it's a sad, it's a sad, uh, mindset to be in, but that's, you know, 
probably you know, where we're at. At the moment, you know, I, so. I I can understand the decision though, not just economically. Like when you get to a point like where, from a central planning standpoint, which I'm not exactly a fan of, but it it is what it is. And the person is doing their best at that level. Well, okay, shit, we need to build two million homes in the next five years. Okay. Well, wh how? Yep. The question doesn't become what is the best material to build a house. It's how the f do we build two million homes in the next five years that people can actually afford to buy with the economy that we have. And right. It, right. It, that's how yep. we. That's how we got here. So instead of like lamenting it, we need to figure out well. Like, How, how do we get out of here? And I, I'm excited about timber long term, but short term, I'm excited about you know concrete. I think concrete. I we had a gentleman here named Tim at our workshop that talked about his home that he built as as a dome home construction. And you can build this house for about what people are building standard stick built houses for. It comes with some complications in that it's well, it's round. Right, so like your outside walls are all complicated to deal with, but you know you got a house that pretty much, unless a missile hits it directly, it's going to stand. And when you're dead, your kids are dead, and your grandkids are dead, it's still going to be there. And we can do concrete now. We couldn't, and we could build, we could build a hundred thousand or a million homes out of concrete this year if we wanted to, if there was a demand for it. We, we couldn't do it with, with high-quality timber. We don't have it. It's not there. Or I should say, if we did do it, the environmental damage would be such that anybody that actually cares would be like, no, that's not – we're not there yet. It's not time. Totally, totally. And the whole um – I believe I, I I believe I listened to that show where he was on. I mean, it's super fascinating. Some of the the structures that they're coming up with concrete. Um, the one that I I've been really interested in that that is kind of uh, they're using it for both foundations, but then they're also starting to build whole homes out of it. Is like the insulated concrete forms. Yep. So an ICF mm -hmm. um, concrete house, and and concrete is really cool in the sense that the thermal mass, you know, so once it's insulated. And you can build up a certain amount of thermal mass in it. Um, man, it just a, it's a super stable in terms of temperature um, environment. Uh, again, I mean, there's not I don't there's <laughs> there's nothing that's going to come in and eat it or rot it away. So unless you actually yeah you have some sort of just catastrophic event, you know it's going to be standing there. So um, ICFs are and and some of the dome home and and some of those um, ICFs moves are really really interesting. And, um, and once they, I think some of the, um, complications is just dealing with, with concrete, you know, it's not easy routing power and plumbing through. Yeah. And so if you, if you don't have all that kind of ironed out way ahead of time, you know, you can kind of create a lot of extra work for yourself. But if people aren't afraid of looking into that and, and doing the pre-planning up front, I mean, yeah, talk about durable. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's ways to handle that. Um, you know, if you, you, you put the pathways in in advance, And, and pathways are cheap before you do the concrete. It's a pipe. Pipe is cheap. Exactly. You put the pipe in, you have a pathway. <laughs> you don't use it, that's okay. It's there. That little spot back there, you can have a blueprint where you chip a hole, and there it is. It's hidden, but it's there if you need it. Um, then the other things that, like, when you start looking down that road, we've got aircrete, and then we've got aircrete or concrete, and we move into the concept of, of like, 3D printing a shell which is not tomorrow's technology. Mm -hmm. It's today's technology that's not yet rolled out. Like, 
you could look, and then, then if you want to produce homes in mass, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, you've got basically this machine rolls in, makes a shell, just like on tracks, rolls down to the next lot, makes another shell, rolls down to the next lot, makes another shell. And concrete is interesting as a, a sustainable product. Here's a kind of a funny story. I have this friend, he's kind of an instigator, and he's teaching his son to be an instigator. So they had a project in school where they were supposed to build a model home, you know, a little bitty one that sits on a tabletop, out of recycled mm -hmm. material. So, like, kids are using popsicle sticks and shit like that. And uh, so <laughs> he, he built his out of concrete. And, he took, and you know, the, the guy is an instigator, but he is big <laughs> on you do what you say and, you, you know, you might rape the rules, but you, you stay within the rules, right? So he made him, like, take concrete and smash it up with a hammer and reuse concrete that was already concrete. And so he basically used a coconut to make the form, and he made a concrete <laughs> dome with a hole in it for a door and a couple windows. And he took it into the school and put it on the teacher's desk, and the teacher was supposed to stress test it and try to destroy it. Okay, so they're going to put weights on it and stuff like that, so clunk on the desk goes the concrete coconut, basically. So the teacher says this is not in keeping with the project. So he comes home to dad and says, hey, you know, the teacher, and he said, no, you just need to research that. Do you think I'd let you do it if it, if, if, if it wasn't recycled? You did it. So he researched it. turned out that concrete is one of the most recycled commodities in the modern world. So we can actually take a lot of things that are being destroyed and landfilled and recycle them into new forms of concrete. So it can be, yes, we might do some mining to do this, but they're doing that anyway. And I'm also back to, and so when does this need to be replaced? And the answer is pretty much Definitely. never. Like, cut a hole in it and add on if you need more space, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, it'll be really cool to see where um, some of that goes. And, and as with everything, You know, people are always hesitant at first because it's it's new and scary or whatever the case may be. But um, but once you kind of find figure out some of the the hurdles that that come with the building and stuff like that, and you've addressed it, then yeah, I mean, concrete can be it, it really is just such a such a great material for for a whole building like that. So um, yeah, that space could be could be just massive uh, going forward. So. I guess another place to look, too, with some of these technologies that are more expensive per square foot is how many square feet do you need. So, you know, there's a huge movement right now with the whole tiny house movement, and I'm not exactly a fan. Um, you know, when I see these people, and I, I watched this one recently, um, uh, and the lady, like, you know, climbs up to her loft in, 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 in the top to sleep and takes the dog with her, and I'm like... Yeah, I, I and my dogs both generally have to pee once in the middle of the night, and I'm not so big on climbing down a ladder with my dog at 2 o'clock in the morning so he can go out to pee. But smaller homes seem like a way to start implementing more of the high-quality timber, the high-quality finishings, the things that make the per square foot more expensive. And I think one thing that we've never really done well, even when it was common to add on, is built homes thinking from the beginning, okay, when this home needs to be bigger, where does the next piece go? How does that happen without it costing more to do an addition than tear it down and rebuild it? 
Because I've seen that where, you know, adding two rooms to a house literally will cost you more money than just bulldoze the house and build a new house. Definitely, definitely. And it, it's kind of a funny, like you, if you're doing remodeling and stuff like that, you've probably heard, heard like the, the phrase, like, it's like trying to build a house within a house. Yeah. And so I think, like you were saying, if, if no pre-planning went into it, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, we need, you know, two extra rooms for uh, Johnny and Susie, and they're like, okay, well, that means you're tearing out the whole roof now, because the roof yeah. lines aren't going to work, and yeah. now you're doing this, and yeah, yeah, you might as well just fire up that big, big D8 or whatever and go go rolling through because it's going to be a really complicated and drawn-out process. Um, and so, yeah, and, and back to the like the tiny house thing, uh, it's it's a, it's a weird space. I feel like there's a part of me that, that likes it and I'm attracted to it because it's really easy to implement some of these ideas and to make them really efficient. Mm-hmm. But I almost look at it like, these people should be looking at it as this is like a starter home and make sure you realize that because no one is going to want to age in place in a home like that. Like this, they're just not doing No, You're not no. going to be climbing the ladder. You don't want to, you don't want to be doing that. This is just, so maybe for a starter home, maybe they make some sense for, for some people, but otherwise, um, you know, yeah, you might be better off in like an RV if you want to travel around or something like that. So yeah, RVs uh, are made to move. Tiny houses on wheels are made to be a disaster on the highway. Eventually, like <laughs> I, I get it. Like, and if you're young and you don't have kids, and it's starter home, yeah. If you're middle aged and this is like your middle age midlife crisis, and you're gonna live this way for ten, fifteen years and figure out what to do with your life. Okay, whatever. But like you're saying, like I see two ways of aging out of this. One is. You and your partner move into one, and you think it's great until you have a couple kids. Mm-hmm. And then the other way I see is, like you're saying, as you get older, like, yeah, this is not so convenient, not so comfortable anymore. Because whether we like it or not, we all age. Our bodies degrade. We hurt in places we didn't used to hurt. Um, we have to, to take more bathroom trips in the night or whatever. And And because of all of that, like, that seems to degrade. Now, what seems to make a lot of sense to me, we start hybridizing, like, These dome homes. So if you think about that, when you look at the plans to colonize something like the moon, it's exactly what they want to do. You build a dome, right? You take a crater wall and you build a dome over it or something like that. And now you have a base. And then, well, you need another one. So you don't directly add on to it. You build another dome and you build an archway that connects the two. And then it's like this modular thing. And it seems to me that actually works really, really well. You can tie into existing systems. It's perfectly set up to be able to do that. And if you are doing additions for things like, you know, children or what have you, eventually it gives them more autonomy if you want them to have it. Or if, like, you have guests, like, you know what Frank, Ben Franklin said about guests, right? Like, after three days, they're like fish, they start to stink. Right. So like so so like, you know, when you do have guests in your home, it's really nice to kind of have a place for them and that, you know, whether it be dome or not, having that kind of ideal in the beginning, how do we add on with not necessarily tying in a room attached directly starts to make a lot of things more doable. And I guess it would also make people a little more comfortable with, well, we're going to put in a one bedroom house. Because you know you're not stuck with that forever. You can literally mirror it and put a walkway in. Right, definitely, definitely. And it actually makes me, that concept kind of makes me think to um, something I um, heard about more recently was like um, 
I think they call alleyway housing. And the idea is kind of, yeah, you build this, this main structure and maybe, you know, your parents are there, you grow up there, you've got your brother and sisters and everything. And then as time moves on, as the kids get older, they're more mature and stuff like that. Um, they go out and start living their life. They come back, they move into that main house. And then on the back side, not completely connected, but you build a smaller, more reasonable space that's designed for your parents or your grandparents or whatever. And they get to kind of come in and you kind of build this nice little community, but you still got that space so that, you know, you're not driving you know, each other up a wall every day, but you're able to have all those systems of support with one another. And so, um, no, I think, I mean, it makes great sense. And then, yeah, you're not getting into the, the issue of, okay, how do I tack on another room to this, this pre-existing structure? So I think we're also getting to a point where maybe this multi-generational concept comes back, but yet we don't want to give up the, a certain level of autonomy. Like I could see like being a really old ass man and having my kids say, Hey, you can come move in with me. And then be like, uh, I'll live in a box first. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. It happens a lot, but it tends to happen when people don't feel they have a choice because right. it's very hard. I know from experience, like when I went out and joined the army and I came back and I tried to stay in my dad's house knowing it would only be a couple months, even that was difficult because, well, I'm not a kid anymore. I can only imagine it on the other side of life where I've taken care of myself for 70 years and now I live in my son's home. But if we have this approach, especially as people try to, it seems like people are really making a concerted effort to get a little bit more land. And even, you know, five acres is a lot of land. And it creates mm -hmm. room for several generations to all have their own space. And then, you know, with Rome not being built in a day type, thinking of we only need this much for now and, and planning the expansion before we need to do it, I think that there's a, a lot of that. Maybe it's going to come back, especially as, If you've been listening, you know I have this this real sense of dread that the central planners are going to completely envelop the cities and the Beltway suburbs. And mm -hmm. the only places you're going to really be able to have any sense of freedom and autonomy is going to be you know, a little bit out from all of that stuff. And as you do that, the cost of – as that occurs, the cost of doing that is going to get more and more expensive. So early movers, if they think about this from the beginning, they kind of have this base of operations where – Yeah, all that stuff's good for you. Inside my boundaries, you can you can kind of piss off, and I think that this has this married with that has a lot of potential long term impact. Yeah, yeah, I I, I completely agree with that, and I think I think um, because I'm I'm technically a millennial, although okay. I don't know if I always embrace that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but just even looking out at the at the landscape and just realizing like it's really hard to get into that market just the housing costs and everything are, are really high. And so being able to work with, uh, with parents, with grandparents and being, being able to maybe develop this like community where, yeah, you're able to, um, each have your own space. You can each, you know, kind of do what you need to do. Um, but being able to also flourish together, I, I think that's going to come back in a massive way. So, um, and, and some of it will probably just be due to lack of choice. Cause if you, If you're not into the, you know, inner city life and you're, you're not looking for all that control and stuff, uh, you don't have too many more options than, than getting out and then trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this work? And does it make more sense to have people that I like around me, you know, uh, 
to, to, to accomplish this. So Yeah, because we're talking family here, multi-generation. It could also be you know, people you choose to associate with, people that maybe you totally. take on a long-term lease stance. I mean, like, we're kind of getting off the topic a little bit, but I think that's where it leads is truly smart design leads to valuable property that leads to the ability to have, you know, tenants of a higher quality, I guess, would be if you're if you're taking the landlord approach. Right. Yeah, no, no, completely agree, definitely. Yep. What about the downsides? Like, we're talking about all the great stuff. Usually when... You know, everything sounds wonderful about a thing. There's there's some things that are maybe not as wonderful. Are there some downsides to taking a building science approach as to just a conventional approach? Right, yeah, yeah. So definitely, um, I mean, you can immediately jump back to what happened in the 70s. So if you don't do this properly, you can actually destroy the home really rapidly. So, um, and hopefully if you're, if like, if you're building and you've got, you know, a, a good engineer or a good architect who, who knows what they're talking about, you know, they're going to be, be able to prevent that. Um, the other side of it would be um, at this point, it's still probably more costly. Um, the materials are just are they're getting becoming more and more common. So um, so that's helpful. But but the costs are still higher. And a lot of that is due to um, you're trying to you're trying to not really re-educate, but you're kind of kind of trying to retrain how people have always done things. So when you have like a framing crew come in and all of a sudden you're saying, Hey, like when you frame this wall, you have to take this into consideration because we're going to run this, we're going to run the sheathing up to the roof line to create this, this perfect envelope to seal it. All of a sudden they're like, well, like we've been, you know, cutting this lumber this way this whole time. Now you're trying to, so it, you know, labor costs can increase and stuff like that as people um, I learn and, and develop uh, more efficient ways of doing that. So cost um, is definitely going to be one of the downsides as of now. Um, and then the other side of it would be um, if you manage to get this home, that's, that's really um, set up correctly. You are really kind of relying on all the systems within that home working well. And if you start to have a breakdown in that chain, um, it can kind of go bad quickly. So if you're um, if you're really well insulated, you're really well sealed up, you need a mechanical system to control the amount of air that's being exchanged. And you got to deal with the humidity and, and you, you know, you're either dehumidifying or you could potentially, depending on the region you live in, be adding humidity back in um, all those things. Well, you know, let's say the system goes down, um, the, you know, the air exchanger isn't running or something like that. Okay. You know, in a few days, it's probably not a big deal. You can open some windows and stuff like that. Um, but just being aware that like all these systems are pretty well tied together and they've all been designed to work with one another. So if you get a break in that chain, things can go bad quickly, um, or more quickly than like in your typical, typical conventional home where, um, you know, to some extent, the building is just kind of breathing and moving and, and doing its own thing to some extent. So, yeah, I think that there's also kind of you kind of hit it on the edge there. But, you know, you talked about how, well, we've been doing it this way forever. And now you want us to do this other thing. Uh, some of these technologies are kind of specialized and you may find that you are very limited in builders that you can hire or contractors that you can hire. I think Gary Collins ran into that when he did his home. And I don't remember exactly what his construction methodology was, but he built a small house, 800 square feet. 
And he literally had, for some of the work, a choice of one, which is not a choice. And generally, as anybody who's have, ever had to deal with a service provided by government knows, when you have a choice of one, there's not a lot of incentive for that one choice to be really, really good at it. You right. Know, if you want to see shitty service at a Home Depot, go somewhere where there's no Lowe's stores. It's that basic. So that's one of the things that you may find yourself not just with a limited number of potential builders or contractors, but one or maybe two. And even two is not that great. I generally find like when there's at least three choices, everybody has to work a little harder to earn the business. If everybody works a little harder to earn the business. Right, right, definitely. It's funny you brought up uh, Gary Collins. I actually, uh, I'm really close to where he had built his his house. I'm, I don't know, uh, five six miles away from there. So, um, and and I can I, I can attest to that. The 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 choices for just contractors in this area is extremely small. But then if you're doing anything that's slightly unconventional, yeah, you probably run into a choice of one really quickly. Um, and then, you know. Uh, I think some of the other challenges that then come into play there is um, I think some of these ideas um, you would be able to say, like, scientifically, they're extremely sound, but they haven't ran the gambit of time in the mm -hmm. sense that you know, we don't have a, a home that's been, you know, quote unquote, like passive certified or, or something to that standard that's been up for 100, 150 years that we can go back and say, like, oh, yeah, see, it works. So, uh, like, or even a hundred of them that have been up for 25, right? I right, think. right, exactly, exactly. And so, I think there's an apprehension there for, which is probably you know a, a good thing, um, an apprehension from builders and, and and contractors where they're like, okay, you're asking me to do this. I know what I've done works. It may not be the best, but it works. And now you're asking me to do this thing, you know. And I mean, it's as simple as like. If you if you go on YouTube and you look at a comment section where someone's doing what they call advanced framing, you're literally like framing on 24 inch centers versus 16. I, I would probably lay money down that half the comments are going to be that building's going to blow over like yeah. get a bad windstorm. You know, you have to have 16 inch on center structures yeah. like I've been doing this for 50 years. And I get that 16 inch center works really well. But if you have an engineer, you have this, you know, well thought out we can probably do a 24 inch on center house and make it very strong and durable. So it, it's some of those ideas that, you know, there's going to be resistance for a time and, and, and there should be because, you know, you don't want to just embrace everything that, that comes up. But I think as more and more of that, um, as we move along, as material costs come down, there's more competitors in space. Like I mentioned, um, um, that aero barrier company, like, You know, there's these companies that are coming out and doing this really cool stuff. And as if it works out long term, obviously, the more competitors you get, the better you're going to do for pricing and stuff like that. So um, as, as this stuff kind of continues along and people start to um, want want buildings that are efficient and durable, um, I think we'll see the cost and, and the availability of contractors who are willing to do it, uh, you know, increasing. So, yeah, I uh, I think one other aspect that can't be overlooked is um, financing and exit strategy. So I always believe that anything you do to a place, you should think about what it does to your exit strategy. Does it make it stronger or weaker? And, you know, dome homes in particular, it's difficult to get appraisals because what they'll say is there's no comps. 
So the appraiser doesn't want to to put a value on the house, so the mortgage company doesn't want to lend against the house because the house doesn't have a properly appraised value because, well, there's no comps. Now, there's comps because if it's a 4,000-square-foot house, okay, what did a 4,000-square-foot house down the road comparably equipped sell for? The fact that it's round versus square really doesn't matter, but... It's unconventional. So we actually looked at a house we were very excited about buying when we moved to this one. And it was seven acres. It was closer to my, my wife's father. It had a, a better soil conditions than here, which pretty much every place does. Um, <laughs> and uh, we just could not get financing on it because it was round. And I would say the kitchen in that house would have cost me $80,000 to put in. Oh, and wow. the whole and it was seven and a half acres, and the whole house was selling for two twenty something because they couldn't sell it. And that's almost ten years ago now, right? So things have gotten a, a little bit better, but you really do need to think about things like that when you're doing construction. Because if you go to something like, you know, like insulated concrete panels or forms or whatever they call them, in the end, that's a square house. Right, so that you don't go, to, you don't have that problem when you build a house that's square. It doesn't matter what it was made out of. So those are things that I think people need to think about as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and and yeah, going going to that, just you know, if if the house is framed with advanced framing versus you know your traditional sixteen on center or something like that, you don't know that when you're looking at the house and no. the appraisers there and the bank and everyone. So. Um, and I, I actually think I've, I've been hearing that that more and more they're actually going to start like incorporating things like blower door tests um, when it comes to that because people are starting to kind of pay attention and realize like hey this makes this you know structure more comfortable yeah. it's, it's a better structure so I think we're going to see more and more of that get embraced but I yeah back to what you're saying about exits and stuff like that like definitely take the time to think about it um, if if you know your situation and and the dome home works great. Um, if you're not positive about it, then look at something like the ICF because you're essentially getting a really similar product in the end. But when someone walks up to it, you know, um, they're like, oh, that's a home. And it's like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a square, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's a house. It looks like all other houses, right? It just, yeah. Yep, exactly. So. We've talked about how this can be expensive. Are there ways that it can be budget friendly, either going in or we look at, you know, annualized cost over 10 years or something like that, where that budget starts to, uh, it either pays for itself or it isn't as expensive as it looks like? Right, definitely. So the, uh, I think up front, no matter what, as of this time, you're going to probably end up spending more because again, it's, it's, um, some of it's more labor intensive. Some of it is, uh, you know, material costs are, are more and it can take more time. So you, sometimes you've got more steps involved in, in getting that all together. So, um, but I think where it makes a lot of sense is if you get to do this in, in new construction, you have the budget for it. Um, and if you're pushing, um, towards, you know, those higher standards, even if you're if you're capable, if you can reach into that passive house standard and, and hit that, um, the savings in your um, energy costs in um, repairs, all that I think would definitely show up probably. I mean, I mean, you're going to see the energy cost difference pretty, pretty quickly. There was an example of um, 
a house that was on, I believe it was Matt Reisinger's channel on YouTube. Um, he's a great, great uh, contractor. So if anyone's curious and they want to see some like YouTube content, he's got some great stuff on there. But he actually went with an architect uh, friend of his and they went to this passive house. And I forgot what state it was in, but this guy, um, he was a retired engineer, ended up building this house, um, had it going, and they went through like a prolonged, um, I think it was an ice storm. So he lost power for like a week. And he was just talking about, he was like, my house moved, it was like five degrees in like four days. And so, you know, if you, if you then think of that and you work it backwards, okay, well, how much energy then does it actually take to manage that house? It's dramatically lower. It's dramatically lower. So, um, that's pretty so easy you, math. You're basically heating your house one degree a day. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, right. that's, that's, think about that compared to, you know, what I have to do when my temperature goes to 20 degrees here. I'm, I, I, I don't know what I'm having to rise the temperature by, but I, I guarantee it's more than one degree a day. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And, and being able to just take, you know, if, it, Let's say you have comparable homes at at 2,500 square feet or whatever, um, and one's done more conventionally. They they'll size an HVAC system for that space. Well, if you can hit certain standards, like it dramatically like makes that HVAC system way smaller to get the same job done. So, um, so I think again, yeah, back to the affordability range, you're going to see that um, long term. So it's you know it'd probably be a lot more like like looking at solar and stuff like that, like up front. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to eat that a little bit. Um, and it hurts, but long term, what does that do for you? What does it do for you in terms of, um, not just economic costs and stuff like that, but just, um, um, self-sufficiency too, you know, being able to say, Hey, you know what? Like my HVAC system is small enough that it's actually pretty reasonable to get a generator running and get it going. And maybe I only have to heat it, once or cool it once every two or three days like if we have a prolonged you know grid down situation so um so there's a lot of benefits there but yeah affordability you know it's it's going to hurt a little bit up front as of this time um if you're in a remodel situation then you know obviously you can kind of pace that out a little bit better um but you're still going to run into uh, other costs because again you're you're trying to build a home within a home to to some extent so um so the remodel side, yeah, um, maybe my mic cut out there, um, but yeah, it it can, I it's got some varying levels of affordability, but you, but you're definitely going to be paying more than probably a conventional production style house. So okay, well, do you have any uh, resources or, or anything like that that people can check out? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't have any um, in in building science that that are necessarily mine, but, but some of the things that I kind of like going to, um, to do, um, some reading or, or watching stuff. Um, there's a website, um, building science corporation. It's by, I think the corporation was started by Joseph Listerberg. Um, and he's kind of a big, big name in that field for North America. Um, if you like YouTube stuff, um, there's the build show network. It's, uh, the YouTube channel is Matt Reisinger. Um, but they also have what they call the build show network and it's got some architects and some other builders on there and they produce some really cool content that's um, both building science, but then just uh, uh, more broad than that too. So they're kind of exploring all the new um, technologies and materials and, and techniques in, in building at this time. Um, 
if you're looking into um, kind of like HVAC and, and, and some of that space and kind of what's coming up in terms of uh, new technology and, and how to implement some of that stuff well, there's another website called uh, uh, Energy Vanguard, and that's by, I believe it's Allison Bales, and um, they've got some great stuff on there. So that those are kind of some of the ones that I like to turn to um, in my channel. Um, I do some YouTube stuff, but I haven't gotten too much into the building science stuff. I just don't have the, um, the time at this point to do some of that. So, yep. Well, cool. I'll make sure I include some links in the show notes and I appreciate you being with us today, Ryan. Hey, it was a lot of fun and, uh, I appreciate it, Jack, and I hope you have a good one. All right. Great discussion. I do have a few links from Ryan that I will put in the show notes for you today. Uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope it's giving you some stuff to think about when it comes to uh, future plans for your homestead or future plans for your future homestead either way. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support this show is uh, to become a member of the MSB. I hear from people every day that tell me every year my MSB membership doesn't just pay for itself. It makes me money. So even if I decide you're actually a real jerk instead of a joke jerk, the way we call you a jerk sometimes, and I don't even like you anymore, I'd probably still keep it because it makes me money. That's the kind of product I tried to build when I built the Member Support Brigade uh, program. Check it out today. You can find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Uh, the other way you can help support us, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Lots of online shopping going on right now, T-S-P-A-Z tspaz.com. Go there before you do your online shopping, and no matter what you buy, you will help support us in the work we do, no matter what you end up buying. You'll also see all the things that I've reviewed over the years, all the things that I recommend, and if it's there, I own it, I use it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do so. Today is an item that's been kind of teasing me with being able to tell you it's on sale for like a week and a half. I don't know what's been going on. But every morning I've been getting a price alert, this product is on sale. And when I go look at it, it's not only not on sale, and it normally sells for around $17, um, it's, on, it's, it's selling for $22. And instead of being on sale, it's overpriced, and it's been pissing me off. So today when I got the pricing alert, I almost didn't go look at it. And I was like, I better go look at it because I've been wanting to bring this around again. It's the Winchester 51-piece uh, gunsmith screwdriver set. It's on sale right now for $12.79. This is, again, a, a, a 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. So uh, take out the, uh, the the screwdriver handle part, and it's 50 different tips and bits. And it, I have them all listed out. Um, this is a great item. Now, it's not on par with, like, Wheeler screwdrivers or something like that. Okay? It, it just it isn't. And, I, and I'm not saying that it is, and, and no one uh, w would say that. I, I personally use uh, Forrester in my main uh, gunsmithing kit, uh, Forrester screwdrivers. I think they're about the best you can make. Grace USA makes great stuff as well. But these are good. These are good for 12 bucks. And inevitably, they'll probably have that tip you need when you don't have it when you're at the range or something like that. This is also a good product. You take this and you put this in the glove box of a truck or a car. Maybe you put one in your desk drawer at work. Maybe you put one in your boat. Maybe you put one in your go bag. I'm telling you, it's the kind of thing that you don't realize how valuable it is till you don't have it. 
You take a look at it, and for twelve bucks, you're like, wow, this is a good deal. It's also Christmas time coming up. Ain't no one nowhere that I know of anywhere who, uh, who is a gun enthusiast or a sportsman or would ever be the kind of person to fix anything that breaks on their own, get one of these and go, I don't want this. I mean, this is a great item for a gift. I've been recommending this thing, as it, especially when it goes on sale, for five years. I have sold thousands of them. I have not had a single complaint after selling thousands of them. At 12 bucks, get one, get two, get three, get four, get more. Um, it's just, again, a great item to give away and a great item to kind of stick in places where you may need some tools and you don't necessarily know that you're going to have them. Uh, just great set for the money. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. This song is kind of a heart terror, man. These are all songs released in 2020. This song actually was originally released in 2017 or 2018 by Toby Keith. But it was re-released this year by Willie Nelson. And it was inspired when Toby, who wrote it, had a conversation with Clint Eastwood. So, so, so the people that have kind of been part of this are Clint Eastwood and Toby Keith Willie Nelson. It, it, it can't not be awesome, right? I mean, really... Uh, it's just a great song. It's called Don't Let the Old Man In. And given that we're doing all songs from 2020, and, and some of them this week have been really influenced by 2020 itself, you might think it'd be something like, you know, don't let the old man in because he might be sick and get us all killed or something like that. No, it's, it's, it's totally different. The old man is you. If you're the person singing this song anyway, Willie Nelson, etc. Um, he said there's one line that really freaked him out. It's it's to the effect of, imagine how old you'd feel if you didn't know the day you were born. He said, my whole body and life feels like that. That's part of why he recorded it. But I do a line drop daily on Parlor, MeWe, and Gab. Sometimes I drop it in the Telegram channel. Not always, but always, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a Parlor, MeWe, and Discord. I always drop it in Discord. I always drop in a link to the actual video because you can see what it is. On Parlor or MeWe, you have to try to guess if you want to try to guess what the song is. Um, today I actually did the line drop with, with the title line in it because it was a stanza that I really wanted to kind of hit people with. It's try to love on your wife and stay close to your friends. Toast each sundown with wine and don't let the old man in. And what this is about is we get older and older and older. The old man that's us comes for us. The, the old man that makes us stop being as carefree as we once were. That keeps us from enjoying life as much as we did. That knows his time left on his dash is very limited. And try to keep that old man out of your life as long as possible until the very end, if if you can. Don't let the old man into your life in a way that makes you start acting old. It's a hard thing because there are things as we age that let us know we're aging. You know, when you're when you're 35 or 40, you joke about being old. When you're 40, the warranty on everything starts wearing out. It's a downhill ride from there. I, I can tell you that. But uh, 
I'm going to try to keep the old man out, at least in the way that Willie and Toby mean it here for as long as possible. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Don't let the old man in. I want to live this some more. Can't leave it up to him. He's knocking on my door. I knew all of my life. That someday it would end Get up and go outside Don't let the old man in Many moons I have lived My body's withered and warm Ask yourself how old you'd be If you didn't the day you were born Try to love on your wife And stay close to your friends Toast each sundown with wine And don't let the old man in